0: A couple of months back, I was thinking a little bit about how it's been five years already since we started this church, and it's gone by quickly. And as I was looking over my shoulder, I was thinking about how this particular work kind of rose up like a phoenix out of the dust of my own personal journey through public ministry. Uh, This journey that I have gone through that has lasted now about 35 years has at times been easy, at times it's been smooth, at times it's been really rough, at times I've wanted to give up. There's been times I think that I understood that in public ministry there is no guarantee into tomorrow. And my story kind of intersects with many of your stories that are gathered here today. And I want to tell you that story. And as I do so, I want to talk a little bit about we were born this way as a church for that way of Jesus. Born this way for that way is the title of my message. So I thought about the birth of the early church and I thought about the influence of the Apostle Paul in her survival during those early years. And he talks about himself as an individual that was untimely born. That's the word that he uses for the ministry he had to reach out to a group of people that had been cast aside in the vision of God's promises That is a group of people that we all fit into called Gentile people, which is basically non-Jewish people. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he talks about this hope that we have in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And then he says this in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, for what I received I passed on to you of most importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And then in verse 8 he says, And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one of untimely birth, which is such an interesting turn of phrase. One born of untimely birth. No one saw that it was coming, and no one would have ever envisioned this one-time terrorist of the early church who brought about persecution in the name of Judaism uh, would turn his heart and live a different kind of life. But that's what he says, for I am the least of the apostles and am unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But, oh, well, that's the that's a great word in the scripture. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not in vain. Though no, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God was with me. If you know the story of the Apostle Paul, you'll know that. God met him in a very unusual way when he was going to a town called Damascus where he was going to bring persecution upon those early believers in the Lord Jesus. And in all of his arrogance, there was something that was born anew in him and he had a shift in perspective. He began to look differently at the person of Christ. And I think. Because the Apostle Paul had this shift in perspective, it helped the early church survive. He was an individual that became a cornerstone in many respects and gave birth to many local churches and reached out in the grace of Christ. So that was one thought that came to my mind. The other thought that, I came, that came to my mind this past week, oddly enough, Came from a song by Lady Gaga. You remember Lady Gaga? When she emerged on the scene, she was wearing some outlandish outfits. One I remember was a meat dress. Do you remember that she wore a meat dress? And she wrote a song called "Born This Way." Do you remember that song, "Born This Way"? And it was basically an anthem for those who were outcasts because they were different and the lyrics of that song baby I was born this way reminded me and all of us that my existence my experience and my ethos is very different from every other person in this room I am who I am and you are who you are and I believe God made us that way he is pleased with us that he gifted us all differently and that we all have different orientations and experiences, and we all have gone through different kinds of circumstances. When you open the scriptures, what's amazing about this thing that we call the Bible is that God lets his children tell the story over time. He lets them tell the story in their own words and in their own experiences, and It's interesting that you cannot make the Bible fit together tightly into one perspective. It's too diverse, it's written over too uh, long a length of time, and out of many different cultures and circumstances. And so we can uh, see uh, a movement in the Bible from the birth of what God is doing in the world through creation And we just let God's children tell the story without censoring it, without coloring it to our own liking or controlling it toward a desired outcome. So in our story as a church, there is an intersection of coming to an awareness that we have all been kind of conditioned to look through a painted window. And many of us have never taken a razor blade and scraped off some of that paint to see what's beyond the other side. But I think if you did, the first perspective that you would see is that we are born this way. In other words, the personal side to each and every one of us is we were born at a particular place in time, to a set of parents, under certain circumstances. Often facing difficulties and challenges, and somehow we are a product of all those influences. And what I want to tell you, and I'm not going to elaborate on this at length, because this could be a really long message if I wanted it to be, but I grew up in an unchurched home and never went to church all through my teen years. And some of you know that I kind of began a spiritual journey after I was involved in an accident where I almost took the life of a young man who was running across the freeway down in Akron. And it caused me to start asking questions I had never asked. And um, a small group of people, um, a small church just like this church, helped me on that sacred journey. And what I saw at that moment in time, that was 1975, that a lot of what I learned early in my life as a follower of Christ was often conditioned by fear, often controlled by shame, often having a misunderstanding of what God is really like. I felt a prompting to go on to school. For whatever reason, as I worked as an apprentice in the heating and air conditioning industry, I just felt I couldn't see myself doing that for the rest of my life. And I felt a prompting. It wasn't some type of bright light. It wasn't any type of special miraculous circumstance. It was just, I think I can do more with my life than what I'm currently tracking. And so I went to Moody Bible Institute and thought I could make a difference in the ministry. And so I took a position, I met SD, and we got married many moons ago, and we went on to seminary. And after seminary, I took a position, and I was the pastor there for 28 years. And as I told you at the beginning, it it had its highs and its lows, and it had growth and it had declined, all of that, over the course of the years. Um, And in the usual highs and lows of ministry, what I had noticed that had changed from the time I came to faith, back in 1975, was that Christianity grew into a big business. Christianity became kind of a form of capitalism, and it was using shame and fear and guilt and social pressure to try to conform congregants into a mold, so that obviously you could succeed as a church. It seems as though success or failure, and that's kind of at the heart of capitalistic thinking is either either success or failure. And in those days, I've often felt the pressure of the size of the congregation or perhaps the beauty of the campus in which we um, were home, Uh, but I think much of that was exaggerated, and I think a lot of it was determined by kind of an atmosphere in our country where we needed to distinguish between us and them. You know what I'm talking about? It's Catholic versus Protestants. It's Uh, this denomination over that denomination and at large it was Christians versus the world type thing. And that plays pretty well because I think everybody likes to think that they're in a battle and that they're winning. I mean, you know, today if the Browns win we'll certainly be happy. If we lose we'll have a therapy Monday, right? But Instead of the church being a place of beauty, it became a battlefield built upon the stupid quest of who got the Bible right. When I look back on it, I often think, boy, that was as nine. To think that any one group of people, especially diverse groups of people all over the world, would have one perspective on this diverse book that's not even really a book. We call the Bible a book, but it's not a book. It's a library. There are 66 different books, and it's bound together, and we call it a book. But it's 66 different books that have different influences, contexts, and circumstances. And yet we like to say things like, the Bible says. Well, the Bible doesn't say a thing. It hasn't said a thing in the entire time I've been standing up here. You see, the Bible doesn't say anything until you engage with it. And when you engage with it, it's just like anything else that you read. You bring your context and circumstances and perspective upon it. And you determine the interpretation of it, kind of built upon how you look through that window. And so, the pressure of higher education. When I was in seminary earning my master's degree, there was not much exposure to diverse ways of looking at this wonderful book that I really do think is energized by God. However, I do think there was a pressure, we've got to keep our system intact. And so there is this misperception that there is one theological system that is able to solve all the problems that are in the Bible. And there are a lot of problems in the sense of there are struggles of understanding how this whole corpus of material fits together. And it's interesting how that colored my interpretation for many, many years. And I said earlier that maybe the best way to look at it is in the Apostles' Creed They make some statements, but they don't try to prove a thing. It's just something that held them together. But in the 80s, 90s, and beyond, I noticed that the unity of the church was not built around Christ, it was built around a common enemy. And the common enemy was the LGBTQI community. You see, when the church began to use a common issue and a common enemy, well, then you have a scapegoat that you can use to throw all the problems of our country upon. Well, the common issue was the religious right made abortion the core issue, and in many ways it was the single voting issue for many Christians. And the common enemy became the LGBTQI community, that became the scapegoat of all the country's problems. And I've often talked to Mark, one of our beloved LGBTQI individuals. I said, when they began to blame hurricanes and tornadoes and tsunamis upon the gay community, I go, Mark, did you ever, ever realize you had that much power? Seriously. Come on. But that held people together. Now... You need some ammunition to do that. And the ammunition is a few clobber passages in the Bible, two in the Old Testament, three uh, in the New Testament. And they are very, very difficult to interpret correctly because they're set in a context. Um, There was a... Presentation that I gave when we started this church in 2016 is on YouTube called "Staring into Space," and there I look at all five of those passages and talk a little bit about a a way of looking at them. Um, but let me come back to this. You realize out of the five references that could possibly be taken to be anti-LGBTQI, um, there's over three scripture references on things like do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Five verses, three thousand. And all these are ignored, but these five are the ammunition that are used. And it developed into something quite ugly. And maybe you've followed it on Netflix. There have been a couple of uh, different programs that have talked about the abusive tactics of conversion therapy. Now, why am I telling you all of this? I'm telling you this because of how this church got started. About 10 years ago, I began to question many of the things that I had been taught. I took a razor blade and started to scrape away some of the paint on that window. And there were different authors that helped me to think differently about some things And some of those books are up here on this podium here that you can page through if you want to after the service. But what happened um, prior to 2016, two things. Our older son came out, and I told my wife, Esty, I said, this changes everything. You know that, don't you? Because the church I was pastoring was very, very conservative, and using... Same core issue and the same common enemy that I just mentioned. And at about the same time, the country was contemplating uh, same-sex marriage. And the leadership of that church wanted to get out ahead of that and take a preventive stance. And um, they wanted to put into place a prohibition that there would be no same-sex unions in that particular congregation. About that same time, Esty and I confided with uh, a few people in the congregation about our son, and um, we thought we found a safe place with a few people, and it didn't happen. Um, And so what happened was we saw a change the minute that we came out as parents in support of our son, that there was a different attitude toward us. Around the same time, um, I don't like to single out people, but I'm going to here just for a moment. Um, I thank God for the basil and the fetzers. Because on March 17, 2016, when I told our congregation, that I was in support of our son, the leadership asked me to resign. Now, 28 years, I've seen a lot of young kids grow up into young adults, done a lot of funerals and a lot of weddings. But that didn't matter. All that mattered was this one issue. And about that time, when I handed in my resignation, I. I didn't know where to go with it. And God was working in the heart of Shelly and Bud right about the same time. And Shelly put into our hands some resources because she can tell you her story of how God helped her have a change in perspective as well. But she used some material, and up here to my right are some of the materials that. She just donated to the church that you can borrow and use if you want to read and research. And um, what a godsend that was! About the same time, Tori and Jenny uh, started a small group in their house. Tori is my youth pastor, and he—they didn't ask him to resign right away; that would come later, but. They began a small group in, a, in their house. And some of the people, when they came to church the Sunday after St. Patrick's Day in 2016, and had found out that I'm no longer their pastor, well, there was a little bit of turbulence that occurred in the congregation. And that turbulence led to a smaller group of people that um, began to meet in in and Jenny's house, and we didn't know where any of this was going, not at all. And they began to approach me and say, well, we should start an affirming church. Well, I'm over here in the corner still licking my wounds, basically. And uh, I said, you got to give me a little bit of time. I mean, I just don't know what's going to happen here. So they met for several months, and they kept in touch and kept, I'm putting this little bug in my ear. Why don't we start it? So at the same time, I started to work over at Davis Babcock Funeral Home in downtown and, uh And it was a side job, a part-time job that uh, I had worked many years doing funerals for, I mean, for over 30 years. and. Um, so I asked the owner, you know, do you have any position available? And he said, Yeah. And I came on staff there, and I'm still there to this day. I still work there part time and and do a lot of funerals for families that don't have priests and pastors or in church. And it really is a privilege to get to know them and honor their loved one. But while I was working at the funeral home, uh, I said to this small group, I said. I'll tell you what, I'll ask my boss if we can meet at the funeral home. And we'll do an experiment. And so in July and August of 2016, we did an an experiment. I was quite surprised how many people came out and, and participated in those services in the funeral home on Sunday morning. And when there would be calling hours, viewing hours, on Sunday afternoon, often we would have to make a dramatic shift. Uh, and if you ever want to see people scamper out of a room quickly, just roll a casket by them, okay? <laughs> so it wasn't an ideal situation, but it did help us to think a little bit about if we wanted to continue as a church. And everybody said, yes, we want to continue. And so what happened was we met there until the end of that year, and there was a door that opened up for us at McKinley Community Outreach Center. You noticed outside there's a truck for the McKinley Community Outreach Center, and uh, we are collecting some items that we're going to take up after the service is done to them to help in their continued outreach to the lower-income families of Willoughby. Anyways, um, I. Met Mike Currier, the pastor of Body of Christ Community. And uh, he says, You know, we would really love to have the presence of a church on the north end of Willoughby. Would you consider coming up there? And we did. We were there for a couple of years. We met in the gym. And um, this is an old, old elementary school. It had its own issues of heating, and it had its issues of no heating. had some issues of noise and different things like that, and so we met there, and finally in 2018, this place opened up for us. Uh, I had met another individual through working at the funeral home that is on leadership here, and they said, you know, our congregation is declining. Uh, Would you want to think about moving over here? and uh, maybe help us a little bit. And so that's what we've been doing to this very day. It's um, been a little bit different over the last 19 months because of the pandemic. However, um, their congregation has continued to decline, and ours has too because of the pandemic. And So in some ways, we're kind of like starting over. But we've been meeting here in the social hall primarily because of the, uh, the heat during the summer months. This coming Saturday, I'm going to have the privilege um, of having uh, my second same-gender wedding. And so on Saturday, I'll do that, and then we're going to move back upstairs into the sanctuary. But we were born this way. That's the way the church got started. But what are we born for? Remember I said we are born this way for that way. Well, when we began thinking a little bit about what we needed to do to set things up, I don't know if you understand this, but you got to put together some paperwork to register with the state as a church and you have to have a constitution and a statement of beliefs and all this and that and the other thing. And so we took a few months to put that together. And then it came time to name the church and we put out a survey and different recommendations were made and um, and, and I suggested Shade Tree Community Church because I was just enamored with the name Shade Tree because of the prophet Micah. Um, the prophets in the Old Testament are not primarily fortune tellers. They're visionaries. And they are also crisis managers in many ways. And so in our efforts to start a church, we realized that most lo- local churches are quite secular in nature it's us four no more you don't believe what we believe there's the door and we wanted to have a vision of a community where it's a safe place wherever you are in your personal journey trying to understand what is god like. you might be a skeptic you might be an agnostic you might be an atheist You might be a believer for many years, you might be a new believer, but you are welcome here. There is no judgment. This is a safe place to ask questions and to raise doubts and to work through a very complicated thing that we call the Bible. We take a portion of Scripture every week and we try to tease it out a little bit and give you some different perspectives on how you can look at it. But we most of all wanted this to be a safe place for the LGBTQI community, a place of inclusion, acceptance, and affirmation. And as you can see behind me, we have the equality flag there. Every individual, no matter who they are, or how God has wired them, deserves respect, deserves civil rights, deserves love. And so we are going to continue to try to carry that mission forward. Now, we don't know if it will be here or not. So First Christian Church has just recently put this campus up for sale because they can no longer really keep the place running because of the size of their congregation. Of course, the finances as well. But if someone does buy this, we don't have the resources to to make a purchase. Plus, I'm not sure I would anyways needs a lot of work done in this building. But um we might need to find a new home and we'll keep you abreast of that if we need to do that. Maybe the new owner might will might allow us to continue to nest here. I'm not sure. But we will be an open book and let you know what you know what that might mean as we move forward. Right now there have been no serious offers on this. Book. But so Humanity is always on a quest to understand what God is like. I believe a portrait that imposes our fears on God will always lead to extremism. So one of the books that I really resonated with was by by Brian Zond called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. You want a quick read but a very powerful read this is the book to read it'll change your perspective another book that he wrote was called water to wine and in it he accounts is gives an account of his own personal journey in the ministry i want to give to you a quote he says I was wrestling with the uneasy feeling that the faith I had built my life around was somehow deficient, not wrong, but lacking. It seemed watery and weak. In my most honest moments, I couldn't help but notice that the faith I knew seemed to uh, be, seemed to lack the kind of robust authenticity that made Jesus so fascinating. And I had always been utterly fascinated by Jesus. Jesus wasn't in question, but Christianity American style was. I was disenchanted by paper-thin Christianity, propped up by cheap certitude. I was yearning for something deeper, richer, and fuller. I was beginning to develop a palate for the aged wine of historic Christianity. As I became acquainted with the beauty of the great tradition that had sustained the church for centuries, I realized I had been missing out on something of tremendous value. Eventually, I lost my taste for the contemporary, mass-produced grape juice of religious consumerism. It's true what Jesus said. No one who has ever tasted fine-aged wine prefers unaged wine. So Brian puts it this way in other writings. He said, I had to move on from easy cheesy cotton candy christianity and i might add the word consumeristic christianity as well the call to follow jesus is an adventure it's a journey and it is a mystery and it is often a narrow way that is hard because there is no shortcuts or easy formulas and people don't like that they want easy They want simple. And so we all kind of go through phases of discipleship. You know, the Old Testament is not primarily about the afterlife. In fact, it doesn't even mention the afterlife much at all. It's primarily about establishing the roots of the nation of Israel and the Davidic monarchy. The New Testament talks a little bit more about the afterlife, but not much. Rather, it's devoted to talking about how you take a, a group of people that go all the way back to the time of the Exodus and meld them together with Gentile people that they hated. So what you find mostly in the New Testament are letters on how these two groups of people can get along. And many of the writers call this the new community or the new humanity that Jesus is developing called the body of Christ. But ultimately it helps us Understand this question. What is God really like? To quote Brian Zahn again, he says, God has always been like Jesus. There never was a time when he was not like Jesus. We have not always known this, but now we do. And it makes all the difference in the world. It's such a freeing thing. Not to have to look over my shoulder with false guilt and shame that other religious institutions want to place upon me. So another book that helped in this shift of perspective is a book called A Time to Embrace, Same-Sex Relationships in Religion, Law, and Politics. This is not an easy read. This one's an easy read. This one, you'll have to chew the cut on each page. But it's very profound because it talks about this issue of being fully accepted and inclusive. It's built not just on religion, it's a three-legged stool. Yes, it's religion, but it's also about civil rights. It's also about individuals that deserve respect and reserve mutuality and, and love. And then the third thing is science. What we have discovered is that many individuals in the LGBTQI community are literally born this way. It's been proven. And boy, if you want some information on that, that's the lady to talk to right there. She looked up a lot of the scientific information. There's a lot of articles talking about how the brain is wired, what we are attracted to, who we are attracted to. And so we have to learn that. So I have recently developed, let me say one thing before I mention a fourth book, and I'm almost done. So I mentioned about the Bible being a library. And this book by Dr. Peter Enns uh, is a wonderful book to tell you how the Bible actually works. And this is kind of in between the easy read and the difficult read. Okay, It's kind of in the middle. But it is really, really good to understand what is the Bible and what do we do with it. So now this last book. This is a new release. It's by Brian Zahn called Faith After Doubt. And it's a book that has this subtitle Why Your Beliefs Stopped Working and What to Do About It. Pretty provocative, isn't it? And what he does in the book is he outlines for us how we all go through phases of development. And in your liturgy, uh, there is this particular picture here that we all kind of go from simplicity to complexity to perplexity and then finally to harmony. And I've added in that uh, little graphic that I put together some sub-language, which is mine. Simplicity is where everything is black and white. Do you know people like that? Everything is binary. It's either black and white, right, right or wrong. And there's a lot of fear in that system. And so, for that individual, they need assurance that it's either this way or that way. But eventually, you have to outgrow that. And so, then you begin to enter complexity where there's black, slash, white, and gray as well. There's a lot of issues in life where there's no simple black or white answer, there's a lot of gray. And where those who are in simplicity find hope is that there's only one way to look at something. When you begin to develop into complexity, you begin to find truth, scientific truth, sociological truth, psychiatric truth, that helps us understand who we are as human beings. But not even that is the end. We also go into perplexity. Because where there is black and white and gray, we're going to be threatened at times with my way, the way I want to see things. And so we have to find faith enough to move beyond the perplexities that we often face. You'll find that in marriage. You'll find that in raising children. You'll find that in trying to be good dog owners, for heaven's sake. How do you train the dog to do what you want it to do? Um, There's a lot of perplexity in life that will never, ever, ever go away. That's just a part of being human. But the last one, as we find faith even in the midst of perplexity, is what uh, Brian McLaren calls harmony. And it's where you find peace deep down inside of you. And here's the way that I put it. Love matters more. Love matters more. Whatever your issue in life, Love matters more. Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. and Love your neighbor as yourself. Love matters more. And that's revealed to us in the person of Jesus. So this has been a lengthy presentation this morning because I wanted you to get to kind of see the full story in light of the five years that we've spent together. So I do hope that you find hope here. I hope that you find truth here. I hope that you'll find faith here. But most of all, I hope you'll find peace here. Because love matters more than anything else. Would you stand with me, please? So in your liturgy, as well as on the screen here, here's what our vision for the community is. And we have... We have a constitution the whole nine yards that I can give you a copy of or email to you if you're interested in all that. But this is the best way for us to summarize what we want to do moving forward. Our vision for the community. All humanity sits in a sacred circle as the image bearers of God. All people are loved and valued. We are called to become agents of the good news of God's love. And we want to keep pressing for the vision of the prophets. That is, not fortune-telling, but the vision of sitting under the shade tree. We are convinced love is better than hate, hope is better than despair, community is better than division, and peace is better than war. So Leslie Newbigin wrote in his book, Scripture as the Locus of Truth, he says, The confession of Jesus as the unique Son of God, who by incarnation, ministry, death, and resurrection, has acted decisively for the redemption of the world and for the renewal of the whole creation, provides the hermeneutical key with which I seek to understand the Scriptures as a whole. That's what we're trying to do. We're looking through the lens of Jesus. So let's close in prayer. I'll pray for our lunch. Thanks to Mark and and Peter back there who went down to Barrios and picked up uh, our lunch for us. We appreciate you doing that. So, would you pray with me? Lord, we are dreamers, we are seekers, we are doers, we are thinkers, we are diehards, we are newbies, and we are skeptics, all at the same time. By your Holy Spirit, make us disciples of Jesus, who showed us the power of love. Help us to rehearse the reign of God on earth by showing that love matters more. We thank you for our time together, for this lunch that celebrates our time together. We do pray, Father, for your blessing upon our time around the lunch table and into the rest of this day. We ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to...